Welcome back. back. Welcome to Decision Space, the only show to take place right here in the space between the turns in your favorite games. I'm Brendan Hansen. I'm Jake Friedman. And this is the podcast about decisions in games. And today is our year-end ranking episode bonanza, where we're going to go through and rank every single game that we covered in 2022. I think there's 27 of them, so it's a big in, and this will be a great avenue to sort of explore, uh, look back, explore all the games that we've covered, and also uh, pits us against each other, so you can learn a little bit more about, I think, our tastes, as well as how we've grown to think about these games, uh, some of which we covered a year ago at this point. I'm so excited for this episode, Jake, because it's always fun. You know, we get in the the hustle and the bustle of the year, and then we sort of run through these games and we dive deep when we cover them. But then we we don't have a ton of time to sort of go back and talk about the games that we truly have loved, or maybe there's games where, where we covered them and we sort of maybe didn't love them at the time and love them more now, just as they sat with us a little bit more, or maybe we were really hot on them and we've cooled. And I think it's a great opportunity to sort of discuss with everyone, with each other, but also with the the audience and the community sort of where we're at now, which is exciting. Well, also, uh, as frequent listeners know, we asked for the community's rankings as well. So we also reveal the community's top 10 games and we'll sort of compare the games that we rate higher than the community overall and maybe the games that you you all think are better than we do, which kind of shed some light on sort of who Jake and I are uh, as and what our tastes really are. And I think and, maybe some hidden then, gems. And then, of course, we'll announce our number one decision space of 2022, which is always an exciting moment. We'll see which game gets to join the ranks of such incredible past games such as El Gran A. Yes. Which is the <laughs> oh, only no. one on the list. Yeah, but <laughs> if it's a, what a one to sort of be matched up against. Yeah. I think it's interesting, Jake. So let's just start off with this because we talked about this last year. Last year, our most covered designers were Bruno Cathala and Stefan Feld. And this year, interestingly, those two designers did not appear in our top most covered designers. Though I think we covered each of them three different times with games last year. Uh, and this year, the most we covered anyone was any one designer was just twice. And there's a four-way tie. So we kind of spread ourselves out a little bit more this year. It's the year of the two. The year of the two. I love it. So, And those designers were Phil Walker-Harding, Alexander Pfister, Reiner Knizia, and Uwe Rosenberg. So it'll be fun to see where those games end up on our list and maybe one of those will sort of rise to our designer of note for the year mm, I, that's exciting i didn't a designer of note for the year yeah we, didn't we kind of do that last year we sort of had a little contest and i think uh stefan feld maybe came out on top but maybe I think it was bruno right. Cathal, but it was close you know there were two remember. two designers of note our feld bell our feld bell yeah, yeah. In our Catholic gong. Yes. <laughs> we'll see what musical instruments we get out this year. But, yes. So this episode, just for everyone, we're just going to run through the games. That's that's going to be this whole episode. We're going to talk we'll about the games we covered. Brendan gets on the hot seat. Yeah, exactly. Defends himself. Jake, for what he's done. Jake has no bad <laughs> For what he's done to this list. <laughs> what have I done to this list? Well, my list was perfect. Oh, I see. I see. You know, it it does turn out that the twenty seventh game we ranked, you ranked higher. That's right. 
Oh, so that's what we do here. Whoever ranks the game higher gets to be the one to announce it. So coming in, number 27 was Downforce. And this was Brendan's 27th game. So he had it ranked last. I had it at 25. Um, So a game that we both had pretty low down here. No surprise. It was our least favorite game of the year. I think that this is kind of the only game that we've ever come to the conclusion of on this podcast that it might just be broken as a design, which is a really tough thing to say about a game, something that we would absolutely not do lightly, but in this case, perhaps justified. I still found two games to like less, you know? So, hey, that's saying something for it. I was shocked, actually. So (laughs) this wasn't your 27. I I had more, I had fun you know, messing around with it and like learning about it. Which to Downforce's credit, Downforce is an old design sort of brought back by Restoration Games. And I think it's maybe a game not to be taken too seriously. It's supposed to be zany fun where you just kind of see what happens. And I think that games that kind of fall into this see what happens category tend to not hit as well with Jake and I. Uh, You're sort of along for the ride. You're along for the race in this case. And for whatever reason, that just doesn't align with our tastes. I'm still kind of looking for the racing game that hits home for me. I, I have to admit, I haven't played Flame Rouge, uh, which m- might be the one. I was hoping it would be Downforce. It was not. This was my least favorite game we covered on the show this year at number 27. All and right. Jake, I, I guess, too, just to be super clear for all the listeners, our combined list is a weighted average of both Jake and I's ranks. So our overall decisions-based rankings of the year equally rate Jake and I's opinion. That's right. Yeah. And I also have ranked our 26th game of the year higher than you. And that is Evolution Climate, the card game where you're evolving animals. You're getting food out of a shared pool. You've got a deck of cards, fun powers, and you're trying to, you know, evolve better than your opponents. Brendan, why is this your second least favorite game of the year? (laughs) At some point in this list, we're going to get to the spot where I think framing it that way is going to be unfair to these games. But Evolution Climate, the thing that strikes me about this game is it's sort of a thematic win in almost every single way. When you get a card and you sort of mutate the power of the sort of animal that you're you're building, you sort of feel the effects of whatever, whatever the thematic power is, right? Like you can be a carnivore and herbivore in this game. And when you become a carnivore, you sort of start eating other players' food. You start eating them. Uh, but what frustrated me so much about this game was how fuzzy the decision space was. Uh, I had the realization when we made this episode that the sort of the card pool wasn't small enough that you could make uh, reasonable guesses about what you might draw and therefore what your outs might be and wasn't so large that I didn't sort of feel like I might be able to do that. So this game just left me really frustrated, but I found the art to be wonderful. And I think it's a game that might work better with a group that was just, you know, kicking back, trying to relax, not take the game too seriously. Again, kind of that one of those like see what happens type games, though this is leaning more towards the like serious engine builder. So it just, I don't know. It didn't live up to expectations for me. What about you, Jake? Where are you on evolution climate? Yeah. I mean, it was my 19th game of the year. So quite a bit, seven places higher than you, but still not a game I like loved or really feel strongly about revisiting. Though I do think like the mechanisms are fun. I like card games like this. And, you know, I think it's saving grace for me is this idea that perhaps it's much better played live at a table with friends where you can kind of 
do that politicking, do that like bickering back and forth. Like, you know, nobody's doing a carnivore, right? Like, you know, this is safe. And then all of a sudden, like you're the carnivore or whatever, you know, like that kind of moments. And we were playing this on an app. And I think that was just not the strongest avenue to explore this game. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, to me is is a pretty middling board game offering, I suppose. Yeah, I think even one thing that's great about when we sort of delve into a decision space on an app is that it really brings the decisions to the forefront. Right, yeah. And those from the lens of our show just didn't jump about evolution. It's not climate. always going to make the game shine. It, right. And that's okay, you know, there, yeah. there's room for all kinds of games in this hobby. But yeah, uh, I think of fitting, you know, I, I don't feel too upset about this one being in our in the 26th place on this list yeah evolution climate a totally okay card game totally okay moving right along once again i am the cool nice guy and brendan is the jerk uh <laughs> as we come to you might the, regret that as we get higher on the list, Jake. <laughs> as we get to the 25th game on this list which is actually a tie a perfectly even tie with the game one space above it uh, I ranked this game 20th. Brendan had it as 24th. And we have Memoir 44 as the 25th game on this list. We just recently covered this. I think a lot of what we said about the previous two games apply here for why we both had it towards the bottom of our respective lists, which is that the decision space, you know, the actual mechanics and decisions you're making on your turn felt somewhat lacking compared to a lot of the other games that we covered this year. And I certainly had quite a bit of fun, you know, playing through trying kind of picking a strategy, simulating a battle. Uh, Like there, there are definitely things I like about this game. I think it's a great game for a lot of people, but for a couple of guys who created a podcast called decision space, where we explore the decisions in games, (laughs) this one is like, it's just a miss. Yeah. Memoir 44, I really wanted to be something that I loved. And I think in a different context in my life, I mentioned this in our Discord after the fact, Jake, that I think if if my grandfather and I had sort of, if we'd been given this game, maybe even the year it came out in 2004, when I was a significantly younger human being, uh, and he was still alive, this game could have really hit for us, right? It would have just been this treasure trove of history that we could have delved in together and kind of explored how the consequences of our choices worked in a given system. Seen, you know, you, you really do experience the sort of historical framework that it's trying to convey, and it feels didactic. We covered that on the show. It might have really hit for me, but at this point in my life, it's just not the type of board game that I want to delve into. We didn't really highlight, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, but this is one of the oldest games this that we've covered this year. And I do want to just sort of note that because I think it's important that we we went to Memoir 44 and maybe it, it didn't really hit for us. But the fact that it did, it didn't stand out to us that it came out as long ago as it did. This game was released in 2004, almost 20 years ago, uh, that it didn't just glaringly scream, I'm an old game. I think is sort of an accomplishment of this design and how clean and modern it feels as sort of this new wave of, of war games trying to offer something hyper simplified and approachable for sort of families to, to really delve into together. And so, yeah, that's Memoir 44. Counterpoint. Uh, okay. El Grande Decision Space Podcast Game of the Year for 2021, 1995 release. This is true. Also one of the oldest games we've ever covered on the show. And an incredible game. Okay, well, 
That's Memoir 44. We recently covered it, so we probably don't need to dally on it for too long. Needless to say, not not the love of our life. Jake, this next game, you mentioned it was a complete tie uh, with Memoir 44, and we broke the tie alphabetically, but I think I'd, I'd break the tie this way, and I felt you probably I'm, I'm fine with that, even though yeah. I had this one ranked lower. Yeah. I, I You know, I'm going to be really intrigued to hear what you think about this game ranking here. Uh, so... Let me stop bearing the lead. Our number 24 game of the year out of the 27 games we covered is Phil Walker Harding's Baron Park, a polyomino tile laying puzzle game in which players have personal player boards where they're adding these cool little uh, bear attraction tiles to their boards, trying to fill them up. And the game is structured such that you uh, basically, whenever you cover up certain symbols on your board, you get to take certain types of tiles and it's pushing you towards having the experience of creating small gaps that you get to finish by putting in a nice little uh, one by one or maybe sometimes other perfectly spaced shaped tiles for the board that you create. And it, it it's really perfectly engineered to be sort of the perfect little bite of a game, like one of the lightest polyomino games you could imagine outside of Roll and Rights. Uh, so I, Jake, I remember enjoying Baron Park, but I also remember not really being wowed by Baron Park. I haven't felt compelled to go back to it. Uh, I'd much rather play A Feast for Odin, another game on this list. Not a fair comparison, really different weights. <laughs> but I tend to, I tend to, you know, err towards the lighter side of things. So I think when there's a lighter game in a genre that I like and I'm reaching for the heavier one instead, it's probably a sign that something's more amiss with a the re- game. A red flag. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the thing with this game in particular, I think it highlights something about the way we create this list, which is that we put them into... We put all the games we played into a pub meeple list. And then if you're not familiar, pub meeple is a ranking generator website where it'll show you two games and you click on one and that one, you know, goes up the list and the other one kind of goes down. And so you get shown like, you know, 200 pairings or whatever. And I think Baron Park for me is the kind of game when you play it, you're like, this is pretty nice. You evaluate it. Like there's not really anything wrong with this game per se, but it, you know, it's not wowing you, but then you put it up against all these other games, which to me are just doing things that are a lot more interesting. And it was never, it was so easy just to like keep clicking the thing opposite of Baron Park, which really kind of illuminates to me that sometimes, you know, it's really easy to give a game a seven and be like, this is a good game. This is like an above average game because it's hard to like point out obvious criticisms about it. But a lot of times like a seven doesn't do that much for me. Like how often are you bringing out a seven, you know, on game night type thing? And I feel like for me, Baron Park is an example of that though. Of course, caveat, you know, Paul Solomon, friend of the show. I know it's one of his favorite games of all time. You know, he thinks it's absolutely genius. And I'll, and a lot of people do. I think this is one that the community is higher on than us by and large. But yeah, I think, you know, to me, ultimately, the the games that are like, you know, this is kind of like baby's first tile placement game. And I think those fall in a similar sort of territory as some of these other games that have showed up previously on this list list where it's like the decision space itself is just not that interesting a lot of times you can kind of just figure out what you should probably be doing um and and i think we also talked on this on the in the episode about the decision space feeling too clear Mm -hmm. and i think that kind of goes hand in hand with that so super light game super clear decision space maybe you're not going to find that much fun and intrigue in the decisions you're making 
Yeah, pretty quickly, once you make your first handful of decisions, you kind of know the path, path you're headed down and you just, you you walk along it. I will say, if you're interested in Baron Park because you love the theme or you feel like it might be a good first polyomino game for you or something, go for it. I think it will absolutely be that. And also play with the optional goals. Those make the decision space so much better. And in my mind, they should just be a part of the base game. They don't add an undue amount of complexity in a way that, that I think that it was reasonable to leave them out. They they make it so much more interesting. Uh, again, that's Baron Park, our number 24 game of the year. So this next game is another one that I have rated higher. And this is a pretty big... So one thing we might talk about a little bit in this episode is our Delta. The difference between Jake's ranking and my ranking or my ranking and Jake's ranking. Uh, so this game is not one of the biggest, but it's it's... It's up there. This game, Jake and I had nine spots uh, difference in our ranks. I rank this as my 17th favorite game of the year, and Jake had it as his 26th, second to last. And that is AEG's Point Salad, an ultralight set collection card game with variable goals and multi-use-ish cards, multi-purpose cards, maybe more than multi-use. Uh, every card in the game is either a type of vegetable on its on its front or on its back. It's a scoring objective that gives you points for having the types of vegetables that are in the game. So maybe you are so you're sort of building a quote-unquote point salad based on the objectives, the scoring objectives that you draft into that might give you points for tomatoes or cabbage or lettuce. Uh, and everyone has different objectives. So on your turn, you're picking an objective or you're picking some vegetables. It's really light. I found it to be a very interesting, fun, tense puzzle at two, uh, but not a game that I would be interested in at, at higher player counts, which is, I think, maybe where it probably mostly gets played as a lighter uh, game that you could bring out in between games at game night or on an idle afternoon when you just had a spare 15 minutes. I, I like Point Solid. I thought it was a fun case study, but it's not a game that I've sought out to own. So take that for what you will. Yeah. And I think for me, like I found at two, just like a very tiresome exercise. (laughs) (laughs) And I found it too much counting. Yeah. Way too much counting. And I found it, you know, palatable at higher player counts, but ultimately not something that I can really see myself ever wanting to actively revisit. I mean, sure. I'd play it if somebody brought out and was like, this is what we're playing because it's so quick, whatever. But I don't think it's a game I would ever choose to play. Um, And I think, you know, just like some of these other games, you know, just like Baron Park, like the, the way the pub meeple ranking went for me this year, was just not kind of these like super light, Mm. light, light version of the game. And that might have to do more with the fact that like, when I look at the two games next to each other, like I'm picturing like ideal play experience to like some extent like i'm like thinking like what game would i rather play if given the opportunity and like i'm just not gonna pick point salad over you know almost anything on this even downforce (laughs) (laughs) which i would i would pick point salad 10 times out of 10 over downforce but yeah yeah (laughs) you're jake's like you covered this point brendan (laughs) um no you're good i think do you think that you dislike Point Salad to the point that you're not interested if someone was like, Jake, do you want to try Point City, the new up and coming sort of expanded engine builder-ish version of this? I think I would try it. I mean, yeah, and, and I, but I think that speaks more to just the fact that it's like, you'll I, try basically I ex- anything. I would try basically anything, but also like, especially something light and quick. Yeah. You know, yeah, like, yeah. A, like a game that I don't care for that plays in five minutes is so much less 
odious than a game I don't care for that plays in an hour or two hours. But at the same time, like it's still not like that's not going to like win at any points in uh, my ranking list either. Just being like, it's bad, but it's short. <laughs> it's like, okay. But... I wonder how often in the board game podcast world, the word odious and point salad have been used together. We might've coined, we might've, that might be a first. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> now it's my turn. Let's change the t- topic quickly. <laughs> and we're going to our number 22 game of the year which was Space Space, my 17th favorite game we played this year, and Brendan's 25th. Brendan, you dog, how dare you? <laughs> John D. Clare, AG. My, my sweet, sweet Space Space. You know, it's this is an interesting one because I think it's, my memory could be failing me here, but I think on the podcast, perhaps you liked it and defended it more than me. I think and, so too. And now that we're, and now the turntables have turned. And I'm I'm here saying to you, Dear listener, that Space Space is a pretty okay game. And, you know, you could definitely have some fun playing it. I think, honestly, one thing that kind of changed my opinion and outlook on it a little bit was hearing Jamie talk about how much he likes this game mm. for that sort of like waning decision space, as he talked mm. about on our uh, waning decision spaces episode. And that kind of turned it in a new light for me as well. I've also been quietly working on a on a, a board game design of my own that's very similar to space based in terms of like the mechanisms like trying to like use that and do something a little bit uh more appealing to my taste as a gamer and that also has sort of like made me continue to play around with space based a little bit more and finding you know looking for the the aspects of it that i really like and enjoy and so it has creeped up for me a bit but still you know lower half game for me i think for me space base i was really particularly smitten with it during the episode mostly because i found the whole setup of the game quite endearing i like that space space is a game where you're drafting these ships that go into slots that correspond to dice values between one and 12 right you're rolling two d6s i I think that it presents its decision space in a really approachable way and it, it it's all right there for you the more i played it though the more i felt its decisions were not as deeper interesting as I sort of wish they were. Sometimes games that rely this much on purchasing decisions um, can start to feel a little bit samey in, in the way that you're making the decisions. And from game to game, sort of the creative fleets that I was building within the metaphor of the game never felt quite different enough. I felt that the outcomes I was hoping for in the dice rolls just kind of always felt kind of the same. So just over time... I felt my need to return to it less and less. And I think a big part of that too, Jake, is just that I think that Space Space is a great example of a game that overstays its welcome. Mm-hmm. If this game was 40% shorter, I think I'd be 100% more excited to play it. Uh, I want a, this sort of game to just snap across the table. And, you know, sometimes it can feel a little bit slow to leave the station. If I'm going to dedicate a lot of time uh, to playing a game, I, I want to sink my teeth into it. So... Yeah, there's a lot of, I feel like Space Base, maybe the reason why I was so high on it in the episode was I learned a lot from it, but it's not a game I love and want to return to. Great points. Totally fair. And I think, you know, my 17th or 25th here at 22 is just right. Just right. Yeah. I was struck. Let's take an interlude to reflect on this process. Way too early for that for that line. (laughs) Only 24 minutes in. But I was struck, Jake, by when I was going through the rankings, how often 
sort of I would rank a game something, you would rank a game something, and then it would end up in a spot. And I was like, oh, our combined rank is the perfect rank. I'm rating it too high. Jake's rating it too low. Perfect. We got it every time. So let's just, this will be the first time this episode that we stop to pat ourselves on the back. <laughs> well done. Let's shake hands. Exactly. <laughs> I wish I could reach through the, through the microphone here. I would love to. Okay. But so moving on. To another game in a perfect spot. And it, it is in a perfect spot, isn't it? This is, <laughs> so our 21st game of the year is Get On Board New York and London, a Sashi design. Uh, from you might know that designer from games like Coffee Roasters or uh, the game that this game was actually based on called Let's Make a Bus Route or Wind the Film. Uh, so this is a Japanese design sort of brought in and reinvigorated with a more lavish production from Yellow. Uh, this is a game masquerading. It has the decision space of a roll and write with a presentation of a board game, which I was really excited to cover to, to cover Get On Board New York and London. I rated this game an 18 and Jake rated it a 23. So we've ended up at 21 for our ranking. I think that this is another example, Jake, where maybe I really value and over time, I think maybe the format of the show has made me overvalue variability. Um, and because the more I played Get On Board, the, the, the more it felt a little bit stale. It felt like I was doing the same things over and over again. And part of that is because we we sort of want to dive deep on these games and explore their decision spaces. Excuse me. And the more I explored, the more frustrated I got that I didn't have more choices I could be making. You know, it, it kind of on a turn to turn nature, the way that the, the routes come up. This is a game where you're sort of building a route through a city where you don't want to cross over other people's routes, but you do want to pick up different people and drop them off at locations. Felt like more or less from the first two or three decisions I made, I'd kind of made my path literally through the space and I just had to stick to my optimal path as much as I could. The interaction, I was really excited for this to be an interactive roll and write. It didn't quite earn its keep as an interactive roll and write. I still am looking for a really fun, interesting, interactive roll and write that lives in that board where you really care. Um, so for now, I think I'm really glad to have played Get On Board. It's a game that I enjoyed enough that I'm really interested in checking out Sashi's other designs. But for now, we'll say I'm off board. Yeah, I you really covered all my comments on this one as well. I think it's a game that is pretty fun the first couple of plays. And then you just really quickly realize you're more or less on rails. Yeah. And, you know, that's the the long the lasting effect is a pretty limited and not that exciting decision space for me. But like the the system is clever enough that, you know, if somebody if they release get on board Tokyo and Yokohama or whatever, you know, I would definitely want to try it out and play a couple games of it. I don't know that I would buy it or I yeah. wouldn't buy it. But if it came out on Board Game Arena or a friend had it and wanted to play it, I'd be super excited to check out more games in the line to to play them one or two times and then move on. Yeah, that's that's really well put, too. I want I want more but I don't want to play this more. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that is Get On Board New York and London, our 21st ranked game of the year. The next game is going to be a contentious one. Jake, I, I feel like I can see the, the boxing gloves behind you there. Um, this is our number 20 ranked game, and it is Splendor. Uh, 
Splendor is also the very first episode we covered in this year. Oh, is it really? It's yeah, this is this is really taking us back. Um, So I'm excited to get to talk about Splendor. It's been a whole year for reflection. I rated this game 14 and Jake rated this as his least favorite decision (laughs) space of the year at 27 to Jake. uh, Jake, take the floor. Okay, this is my appeal to you and everyone in the board game hobby, the people listening to this podcast. It's time that we stop all pretending that this is like a great game. (laughs) That's it? That's the end? (laughs) No, I mean, (laughs) I am joking, but I really just like, to me, like I don't get the hype. This is, it's just like a clear case that for me, it's a game I, you know, used to own, moved on from, you know, revisited again years later on this podcast with you, played it a bunch of times. And like, it's not even that the game doesn't have interesting decisions. Yeah. It's that like nothing interesting ever happens in the game, Mm. you know? And and that's like kind of a different thing uh, entirely. And I mean, I, I think I have like a hard time expressing, you know, why this game doesn't appeal to me because clearly to so many people it is a great game it's a great gateway game it has like just such an incredibly simple rule set but i think like for me having a simple rule set and there being a game that emerges from it like is alone not enough Mm -hmm. to sell me on something or to get me to enjoy something so you know i don't know maybe i just feel like this is my uh line in the sand or whatever so i had to make it my 27th but I swear I just did it authentically. I clicked on the games I'd wanted to play more and Splendor end of last. I So I think that it's really interesting. I, I appreciate hearing you talk about Splendor and what intrigued me the most about what you said, Jake, was that it's not a game that lacks interesting decisions. And I think that that's really important to sort of highlight because I think that what Splendor, why it misses for people, and we had a lot of discussion of why it didn't work for some people. Obviously, Splendor is this mega hit, right? Like it's like one of the most successful games of the last decade. So coming at it from that perspective, it's it's almost more interesting to reflect on why some people don't like it than why so many people like it. But I think from a decision space perspective, it's so much an optimization puzzle. Like at its core, it's about shaving shaving off little pieces in your progress towards the finish line. And there's not a lot of room for bombast. So I really like this game because I think that there's inter- the decisions are really interesting. Like any given turn-to-turn game, I'm having a lot of fun trying to solve the, the puzzle that's developed on the board. But I totally see the criticism of, at the end of the day, there's no fireworks. And, yeah. and for sometimes, like, you know, you just need some fireworks. Like nothing ever feels good to me. It's like I mm. get a gem and my income is increased one. Always max, <sighs> you know, always one. But what about when you get that shiny, beautiful, lovely gold and you get the potential to spend it on so much and then you and, just don't? It just feels and, so good. I don't know. It, yeah, right. Or, or you pick up some gems, one or two or two or three, you know, I don't know. It, it's whatever. I'm, I, I, you know, I'm bored already. Let's go to the next game. <laughs> so that's our number 20 race game of the year. Splendor. Splendor. Um, okay. For those of you still with us, <laughs> you might not be after this one as we get to our 19th game of the year. And if if that one was controversial, this one is, you know, downright a hot take. And this is Agricola, my 16th favorite game we cover this year, and Brendan's 22nd. 
Brendan, that really surprises me that this was that low for you. I mean, for myself, it you know it didn't crack my top half, so it wasn't like a game that I loved either. Hence, why it's you know down here in our consensus ranking. But you know, it was a game that like I wanted to like learn it. I wanted to get better at it, and I know there's a lot there to be found. Um, it's interesting to see how the games play out. You have your farm. Did you succeed? Did you fail? You can like see that manifesting on the board in front of you. And I love the, you know, the engines you can kind of create with the cards. You know, it felt a little too rigid, a little too difficult to get going, maybe a little too long um, for the decisions it was offering. But which is why I, you know, it wasn't a game I loved. But it was still, you know, a game I thought was okay. But yeah. you clearly not. No, that is not true. So we're <laughs> you hate it. The, we're getting into the territory, right? Like we we have this issue with our show where we we try to pick games that we know are beloved, and also we try to pick games that we think we'll enjoy for the most part. It's it's more fun to extol the virtues of games we love and other people love than to sit around and talk about things we don't like about a thing we don't like. I just don't think that's who we are and what we're bringing to the show. And I Agricola's Agricola's undeniably a massive milestone in the board game oeuvre like this game came out and then it changed the way that euro games are perceived and made undoubtedly forever uh it's a really important game so coming into it i i'd sort of known of agricola basically the whole time that i'd been interested in board games since i sort of jumped back in um and i think that for me it brought about this stark realization it's it's all about the scoring i don't I, it's the the hyper rigid scoring yeah just, it, it at the end of the day arrested the decision space in a way that felt really frustrating because you have all these really cool variable cards and there's this like huge potential to to push or pull in certain directions but the scoring conditions are so rigid that it sort of says no you will make mo- this farm you will make the farm that Uwe Rosenberg says should be your farm. You will have as m- this number of pigs. You will have this number of sheep or cows. You will have this number of horses. You will have this number of pumpkins and it will be nice. And sometimes, you know, you just want to fill your plot with pumpkins. And I wish that this game would let me do that. I think that the, the card system also, it is cool. And I see, we talked about Jake on the episode, how Agricola is sort of a great example of a, of a, board game that could be a lifestyle game totally and i I think it's it's exactly that if i was creating a list of lifestyle board games to delve into i'd consider agricola but when i'm approaching it in more of a hobby manner the cards frustrate me because you can't fully it's very difficult to fully understand the consequences of how cards will play out within in the system based on other people's choices unless you have experience with them so i felt that the the burden to probe the joy in agricola was just so high that I sort of, I, I'm going to be honest, I kind of wanted to be spoon fed a little bit more. And I, I just, if I could choose to be a subsistence farmer in like the, I don't know, just after the dark ages in Europe, or if I could be a Viking, I would choose to be a Viking. We're modern it. gamers with modern sensibilities. I guess so. I mean, <laughs> I, that's yeah. speaking of. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was Agricola, our number nineteenth game. Jake's trying to move on, which is yeah, we should. Uh, the juxtaposition here is brutal. Yeah, I, people it is are going to so skewer bad. us for this juxtaposition. <laughs> oh no. No, I, I, and I have to do. You, it. you have to because oh, you're no. the one who ranked this game okay. 
significantly higher than Agricola, not me. That they're both worker placement games too. It's just like, oh. Okay, so our number 18 game of the year is Dice Hospital, a game that I rated at 16 and Jake rated at 18. Dice Which Hospital... Two, two points lower than Agricola for those keeping track at home. Yeah, <laughs> that is true. <laughs> so Dice Hospital is a worker placement game, but the, the twist is, is that all the worker placement spaces are on your own board. So you're not competing for the worker placement spaces. You're just competing for a shared pool of patients who are represented by dice that you're trying to, you inherit them at, and their value is somewhere between like two and five. And you're trying to get them above a six, in which case you heal them. Yay. And they leave your hospital and you get lots of points. This game is really interesting because it's a very low interaction worker placement game mostly played in a personal space where the game is really, really, I would say it's a minimized game and a maximized puzzle. Uh, yes, is how yeah. I describe Dice Hospital. And for me, this game was doing that super well. It's like a shared puzzle that's so interesting where there's just enough texture in the different color of dice that might relate to certain types of worker placement spots that I invest in. And there was an interesting ability to sort of make concessions in the type of workers that I'm getting because there's specialized workers in this game versus the type of worker placement spots that I'm adding to my hospital. And the more I played this, the more I found myself enjoying it and wanting to explore its systems more. Obviously, this isn't my favorite game of the year, but it is a game I really enjoyed and would like to keep returning to. Um, I think that Dice Hospital is almost a game that I would like resoundly endorse. Uh, that everyone should try it's just not quite there for me but it's a it's a it's a good game i really really enjoyed it it is the first game on this list that we both rated in the teens so out of the 20s so that is saying something like it did appeal to both of us at least that much i mean i think it's a game with like almost hardly any decisions because the decision space is so clear but if you like doing puzzles it's a pretty nice time yeah yeah you know so it's also you know, I think you should know sort of if that's the kind of gamer that you are. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. You know, like this is multiplayer solitaire for sure to like the highest extent. And I yeah. think that's a great thing that a lot of people will enjoy. And this does that pretty well. Yeah. Awesome. Well put. So that's Dice Hospital, our number 18 game of the year. And our number 17 game of the year. I'm excited about this one. This is. My t- number 12 game and Brendan's 19. This is the first one that I could will unequivocally recommend as like a very fun game that people should play. And it is uh, That's Pretty Clever or Gone Shown Clever by Wolfgang Warsh. And it is the kind of prototypical roll and write game uh, in sort of the new wave of roll and write. So we've gone, we've evolved the genre beyond the Quixes and 21s of the world to this new place where you have crazy combos you know you're tr- you're marking off boxes which are triggering you to mark up box somewhere else which might even trigger you to mark off a box somewhere else if you can believe that crazy i know you know and if if you're like me just hearing that your brain is already like generating some serious endorphins uh and, you know, this game remains one of my all-time favorite phone apps. If I'm on a plane and I don't have internet, I could just play this for hours. In fact, I was on a plane, two planes yesterday, and all I did on 
both planes was play this over and over and over while listening to an audiobook. And it is perfect because I could understand the book. I could listen to it. I didn't have to think too much. And I'm also crossing off boxes, which let me cross off other little boxes. I How can I beat that? It's so good. I'm so glad you shared that <laughs> anecdote, Jake. I don't feel like there's a ton more for me to add beyond just the fact that I think that Gonshan's Clever, that's pretty clever, is a really good learning experience. It's one of the few games that we played this year where I was really excited to... I mean, that's not true. It's one of the games we played this year where I was really excited to get in the system and try to like really figure it out. Figure out what beats I needed to be hitting on certain tracks to to get ahead and chase a high score. I think that as far as games go, there's games above this on the list where my appetite to play them is insatiable and I could play them endlessly. And I've found that my appetite for that's pretty clever is satiable. I played this. <laughs> I, I hit my limit for the show. You know, I played it maybe 75 times and I said, I get it. It's great. I really enjoyed it. Really good game that everyone should play. But I don't. Uh, yeah, that's and that's where I got. I haven't played it since. I, I would happily play it on a plane. I play it on a train but I haven't played it again. So we'll see. I'm going to travel. Maybe I'll pull it out. It's yeah, you game. should. See if you can beat my score. Of One, well, 276. That's a, that's a very good score. Yeah. Okay. I know. I was very <laughs> proud of it. I was like elbowing Bridget. We just, that's amazing. <laughs> Look how big my number is. Um, <laughs> okay. So that's our number 17 game. That's pretty clever. And now it looks like we're hit the roll and write section of our rankings this year because our number 16th game of the year that we covered on Decision Space is Cartographers, a polyomino roll and write game in which you're trying to create these different trains and slot them nicely into a board while collecting gold not getting hurt too much by monsters and trying to achieve these four overlaid objectives that sort of sit nicely over a core puzzle. This is my number nine game of the year and Jake's number 21 game of the year. So that's a pretty big delta there. I did 12. hit a top 10 though for you. So how about it, yeah. that? I, you know, I just, I really enjoy cartographers when I sit back and I sort of say, I've looked at, done this exercise before Jake, where I look at all the roll and rights I own and sort of say, which ones would I get rid of? It's it's not cartographers. I want I like this game a lot. There's issues with it. We've talked about how some of the decisions around what cards can come up and the math there makes it hard to make a uh, an educated guess without just going in and studying the deck, which is annoying for a game of this weight. But the more I play it, the more I enjoy it. I think it's rewarding. It's fun. I like the polyomino puzzle. The light bit of interaction is not the highlight here for me. The highlight is really the way that the variable goals in winter wait how do the months go uh spring summer fall and winter uh the way that those variable goals come out and really shape the decision space and give you interesting trade-offs depending on the cards that come out of maybe i'm going to push for points now or i'm going to really push for a big late game and i i think i'm always having fun making tactical decisions in this game of where my pieces go and also making those larger strategic decisions of what's my What's my path to points this game? Yeah, I think this one totally comes down to just personal preference for me. I don't think anything you've said I would disagree with. I think I just prefer my roll and write games to be like really light so that I can like listen to a podcast while I'm doing it or, you Mm. know, or talk to friends and and not have like the roll and write being like the feature activity that takes all the focus. And I think Cartographers is just like a little bit too much going on a little too much a little too thinky 
Mm. Uh, you have more options with everything you're doing. Delicious. Uh, you don't get to really have the as much of like the slam dunk role, which mm. you know the Yahtzee role for the genre, which is still something that I think I come to this genre for. And yeah. if I want like a more thinky, delicious decisions, as you describe it, I probably don't want to be doing a roll and write game. So that's just per- totally personal preference, uh, and that's why you know something like that's pretty clever wins out for me quite clearly in this genre. So that was our number 16th game, Cartographers. Jake, I'm so mad at you. I'm so mad. I can't believe you ranked this next game, our number 15th great game of the year, Great Western Trail, second edition, <laughs> a 22. Great Western Trail, 22? What? I ranked this game an eight. I think this game is so fun. This is a, a deck building game where you collect cows and you take them in a loop uh, and you deliver them to be uh well we won't say what happens to them you you set them up um but basically you be you free, to be free. <laughs> in kansas city <laughs> the land run rampant cows. down the street <laughs> yep it, beautiful it's the next pixar movie um you uh no you like augment the board you add these cool buildings there's these competing strategic paths between getting these conductors and moving down this locomotive track or uh really building up your cowboys and making a strong cowboy deck or augmenting the board of buildings that change the actions that you have as you run through this loop. And the whole game has this amazing sense of momentum as the more you play, the more you can do, and the more what you can do is doing for you. And I just think that this game, its reputation precedes it for a lot of people, I think. Its theme isn't the most exciting to me, but I I really enjoyed the decisions here. I'd always play a game if someone offered, and I want to play more. Jake, why didn't this game hit for you? Yeah, I don't really know. I think I really like Alexander Pfister designs that I, other of his designs. Maybe we'll talk about another one later on. Um, I think for me, it comes down to the fact that it's just like I find a lot of the mechanisms in play like pretty fiddly, like mm. the way the workers come out and the way the game advances. It just feels like a little bit of mechanical artifice, unnecessary complexity and rigidity that doesn't need to be there in that way. Um, And I I feel like the strategies are pretty linear, right? Like you're, I mean, it felt like as I played it, my more successful games came down to sort of like going hard Mm. in a single direction with workers. Specializing. Um, Yeah. And, and especially I felt like the engineers when I was like getting them going, that that was like really strong for me, but I didn't want to just, you know, do that over and over either. So I don't know. I think, I think I didn't feel like as, as much like strategic fulfillment as I would like Mm. in a game of this weight and length to play the tactical play is definitely there. Right. As you kind of like get to decide uh, how far to move and like what actions to trigger and how to trigger them. Like that's there. That's great. But ultimately it just like didn't totally come together for me. And for, as I keep saying for of a game of this weight and this length, it has to all come together yeah. to justify its time price and complexity. I think for me, just to, to cap it out, the thing that sticks with me about great, great Western trail is that it's a game with a real sense of momentum. Uh, the, and you feel that in the mechanics and the play. And I, that's the thing I admire most about this design. And I wish heavier games uh, felt more like a boulder rolling down the hill, like Great Western Trail can feel at times. That's all. Yeah, well said. So that's Great Western Trail. And then we will move on to our 14th favorite game of the year. And it was 
Rajas of the Ganges. And it was my number eight game and Brendan's number 21. So Rajas of the Ganges, a great midway Euro dice placement, dice manipulation, efficiency puzzle. All those things really speak to me. The mechanisms in this game are absolutely all mechanism I like in board games. I don't know that this, as I said in our podcast episode, to me, it doesn't reach the pinnacle of that genre of mm. games like uh, Marco Polo and Bruges and... Uh, That's it. Uh, That's the pinnacle. Uh, uh, what's the other one? <laughs> Castles of Burgundy. But that doesn't mean it's not like a totally great game in its own right. And I think, you know, Rajas of Ganges is that. Yeah. I liked Rajas of the Ganges a lot. But to me, the thing about this game people we're going to get to the community list at some point people in our discord really love this game uh but one thing about this game for me is just that the way that this game sits on the table signaled a tiling puzzle that i wish it had that really feels de-emphasized somewhat it feels more ornamental than i kind of wish it did and i think super fans of the game might push back on me about that a little bit uh, and maybe fairly so but i guess the in the end with this game, it just didn't quite meet my hopes for it. Even though it's a game that I really enjoyed. It's a game that I saw. Uh, I, I liked it a lot. I just saw that I with I wanted it to be something that I would like a ton more. And it felt like if it really committed in one direction or another, I might like it even more. And, and I think for me, I was just like kind of okay with that middle path. Like it didn't really bother me that much that yeah. the that you could de-emphasize one part of the game and still play it well. Like the core to me was just like navigating steadily throughout with lots of potential pitfalls to fall in. Yeah. Um, and that always feels good, right? It yeah. feels kind of good even when you hit a pitfall and you're like, okay, I really stumbled there and now I'm probably going to lose because it was like a mistake that you made. You know, yeah. it's, it's yeah. not like randomness or chaos. And I think that's one of the things that games are great for and, and particularly this sort of dice placement type of game does among the best at least yeah. among mechanisms that i've explored totally so that was our number 14 game of the year rajas of the ganges our number 13 game of the year is eric lang's blood rage a troops on a map combat game in which you're drafting cards playing special powers making your position within the game increasingly asymmetric and basically trying to optimize uh, the way in which your troops are used, which could be winning battles, could be losing battles. Uh, and it might be by not really caring much about battles at all and just doing other things entirely. And I think that <laughs> Blood Rage in general, I, I think is a game that I clearly like it more than Jake. I rated it at, uh, excuse me, at 12. Jake had it rated at 15. Yeah, we're not far off. I'm I'm really intrigued by that, and I I'd actually love to hear your impression, Jake. I think the further we are from the episode, the more I want to go back to Blood Rage. But I want to play it. I want to just dedicate a night. I just want to have a Blood Rage night and sort of play Blood Rage. But caveat with people who know to play Blood Rage, because I think this is a, a game that's probably better with people who are equally skilled than it is with a group of you know two new players one master and one player who's played it a few times. Yeah. Yeah. I think blood rage. What is a game that was like a big beneficiary of the ranking system we use, which mm. is like, I think, you know, my head 
went to ideal play experiences as yeah. I was ranking these. Like, which do I want to play more? Which do I like more under ideal circumstances? And Blood Rage under ideal circumstances is like a pinnacle peak gaming experience. It yeah. has that potential to just be super great. It also has the potential to be totally awful, right? Yeah. Like things can fall off the rails for you in age one. And that means you still have like an hour and a half of play knowing you're out of it. Yeah. I mean, that might be a slight exaggeration, but it's I, definitely I like it's a much. huge snowball-y type game and not in the way that Great Western Trail is even in the way that like somebody has a giant army all over the board and they're definitely going to win and you can't really do much about it because they're just going to keep stamping you out. Um, yeah. So I think for me, it is a game perhaps more than any of these others on this list of uh polarizing experiences i've had just wonderful experience with this game uh and i've had really bad ones too but i i don't mind i think the as i get more and more into this hobby that's becoming something that i not only like tolerate but can like really come to appreciate about a game much more than when i first joined the hobby in 2015 and blood rage was this like huge game and I bought it and I played it a few times and had some like negative experiences with it and just kind of thought like, I must not this like this me. type yeah. of thing because I'm not having fun playing and everything is new to me and like everything is fun. Um, but yeah, I think like now more mature in my own like taste and more comfort comfortable and like n- knowing like what type of mechanisms I like and I don't, I'm a little bit more okay with that. So yeah. I think that's kind of a change in me as well. Awesome. So that's our number 13 game of the year, Blood Rage. Well, now it's my turn to be mad at you, Brendan, for what you've done. This was when I was like, did the list and I was like, wait, where is this game on the list all the way down at 12? (laughs) How is that possible? Well, that's because Brendan ranked our number 12 game on this list, Living Forest, at 23 to my four so our biggest delta of the entire list comes here um so i guess it's my floor to talk about why living forest is fantastic yeah yeah so i think living forest has become my favorite competitive deck building game Hmm. that i've played i think that it is a game that is incredibly simple and intuitive really the rule set is quite light but it is a game that very much rewards play, uh, additional play experience, growing uh, and being able to better understand sort of not just the systems at work and how they come together, but the interactive elements on the board too. Like it feels like a game that really rewards being able to like identify and understand what the current game state is at any given time. Um, And I think that is something that has really, as I've continued to play this game after recording the episode on it, that's really lifted up is that I've sort of moved away from just like playing the game, looking only at my stuff and what I'm doing and looking at the game as like a table at large and seeing how I can play to interact with and manipulate what other people are doing. Uh, And that has really given this game a second life for me. Um, And it's become a game that I've continued to play a lot and continued to grow in my appreciation and esteem for, which was already quite high at the time of recording. Uh, Yeah, so this one was my number four game of the year and and a game that I like 
more than, you know, uh, Dune Imperium, Lost Ruins of Arnok, any of those. So Living Force is an interesting one for me, Jake. And hearing you talk about it is the one thing that's made me really interested in returning to it and seeing if maybe I, I got it wrong. Um, I, I, I was... I think I was the one who really pushed Living Forest as a game we needed to cover on the show. Like, let's get this game played. It was before it won the Spill the Yars, and it just seemed like the kind of game that would hit for both of us. And I think to both of our surprise, it really hit for you, and it just didn't hit for me. It really fell flat. <laughs> and I, I still, to this day, am surprised by that. I wonder if a little bit, when we do this show, I have three hats that I'm swapping between. It's it's really hilarious, right? I have my designer hat, my critic hat, and my unbridled passionate fan of games hat. That one's like a cowboy hat, just like squarely on my head. And when that <laughs> hat was on, I think I like I expected that to be the hat that I would wear the most when I was playing this game. And the hat that got in the way was like the critic hat was on the left and the designer hat was on the right. And I was just frustrated by this game because I felt like none of the systems were explored as deeply as I wanted. So in, in a way that Living Force to me felt like, a, uh, you know, the classic mashup songs where you bring a little like this song and this song together and then it makes something cooler and better. So for me, like Boulevard of Broken Dreams or whatever, like that, whatever. I'm, I'm dating us. You know what I'm talking about. Right? <laughs> yeah, I can't believe that's the song you went with as your reverence. Yeah, yeah. So but what is that? What is that, that genre mashup? mashup? Yeah, I can't even remember at this point. It's Green Day, right? That's Green Day. It's Green Day and... Uh, I think it's just Green Day. No, no. <laughs> well, I don't remember the mashup song. I just named the Green Day song. Yeah. Oh, okay. I thought yeah, you were yeah. just like talking about... Like, oh, this is like Green Day's like... <laughs> mashing up like they're like emo and like rock and roll or something <laughs> like, I thought that's what you're going with. well basically <laughs> oh and wonderwall that's the mashup broken dream boulevard of broken dreams and wonderwall and the point is is that you don't get to enjoy wonderwall for what it is and you don't get to enjoy boulevard of broken dreams for what it is and i just like i want them to be fully explored together and you can have great mashups but yeah. for me living force just none of the systems quite got to come to the forefront in a way where I felt like I was probing the depths of the decisions there in an interesting way. And most of all, the core mechanic of flipping the cards just kind of at times interesting, rewarding, but is it fun? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I'll come back yeah, to this game. Today. It is fun. You've okay. mistaken Boulevard of Broken Dreams and Wonderwall for, uh, or you've mistaken Living Forest for Boulevard of Broken Dreams and Wonderwall when it was Miley Cyrus and Biggie Smalls the whole time. Oh, okay, we'll see. We'll see. I'm definitely here for a party in the USA. But um, yeah, Living Forest, that's our number 12 yeah. game of the year. If Jake had his way, it'd be a top a top five game I of the year. I can't believe it's not a top 10 for us. Yeah, I it know. should be. I know. I'm sorry, But Jake. we'll work on you. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. The next game on our list is a pure tie. The number 11 yeah, game of the year. Yeah, zero delta. Yeah, zero zero. We got this one exactly right. Yeah, we nailed it. First try. <laughs> this game is Phil Walker Harding's Sushi Go. The second, uh, another double dip on a designer. Uh, Sushi Go, I feel like almost needs no introduction. It's just such a crossover hit to the point where my non-hobby board game playing family friends know of Sushi Go and are like, oh, you like board games? Come play Sushi Go with us. We love this game. And for good reason. It's approachable. It's light. It's interesting. And the decisions are rewarding and good. If there's pusher luck in Living Forest that bugs me, the pusher luck of taking a, a second sashimi with, when you don't know if you'll will the third, what could feel better? I love this game. This game is delightful and smart and simple. And it's just a timeless classic, Jake. 
Totally. Yeah. And this is the counterpoint for me to some of the other lighter games that I had towards the bottom of my list where it felt like the lightness of it was also its virtue Yeah, where this is just as light as those, but it's also a great game that has super fun decisions and it's just super satisfying to play and it's exciting. You know, it's really the whole package and you can get it for like $7 right now, which is nuts. It's a game that just easily because of the price point belongs in like anyone's collection, but, but it's not a top 10 game for us. Interestingly, (laughs) because this next one knocked it down. I'm I'm kind of surprised, but Jake, you're you're hot on it. Oh yeah, I love this next game. Uh, Our number ten. We're here. We are number ten. Our official decision space top ten decision spaces of 2022 starts right now with Rift Force, my number seven game of the year, and Brendan's number fifteen. I love Rift Force. I think that this takes a well-established genre in board games of sort of the line battler, yeah. uh, like Lost Cities or Battleline. Um, and it does something totally new, very interesting and fun with allowing you to draft different factions of elementals at the beginning of each game, which creates a fantastic little mini game of counter picking and picking almost like a League of Legends like esports situation. Uh, that's just like the uh, what's what's the term for like a, a single bite of food to start the oh, meal? Oh, like an, an amuse bouche or an that's appetizer? the amuse bouche of yeah. this game. Yes, and then you get into the actual game, which is also great. You know, it's it's very simple, fun hand management game, and oh my god, is it like deep? Like the ability yeah. to improve at this game. I think it's really, really top notch. Um, so, I mean, what you have here is kind of like the holy trinity for me, like the golden ideal of like simple to learn, lifetime to master, and it's super fun. It's a game I've played a ton on Board Game Arena, and 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 I've played a lot like with the same person, right? Like where we'll just like play a lot and and rematch, and and it's interesting the way like player like people will go on runs like Mm -hmm. oh i'm winning every game and now i can't win anymore and now i'm figured something out unlocked something and and i'll go on a streak of wins and that tells me a lot about the skill chains and the skill ceiling in this game too um so yeah i don't know why this wouldn't be in everybody's top 10 list of the year but maybe you can give some answers to that well i really love rift force 2 actually so i just want to extol its virtues more as one of our top 10 games (laughs) because i think that it the variable powers of all the different suits more or less that you can draft into are really interesting and there's all these emergent consequences about the different powers that you can use in specific ways that really change the way that you use them so the more you play with certain powers the more impact they have but then also the more you play those certain powers with other certain powers also in the deck the more you discover things about how those relate to each other and then you there's this like additive impact of emergent gameplay that just the more Rift Force you play, the more you want to play because you truly do sort of see how uh, wonderfully it is able to maintain simplicity in its rules without things breaking. Sometimes games get too simple and they just break. They just don't work. And that doesn't happen in Rift Force. It's just like Jake said, it's this delightful amuse-bouche that plays into these uh, tropes of dueling card games, plays into tropes of 
classic sort of Kinesia style battle line where you're trying to win certain lanes. Uh, in Rift Force, it's actually to certain points. You're trying to sort of score for for doing well in certain lanes or others, which makes for interesting decisions around maybe conceding certain lanes and giving away points over time to push really hard in somewhere else. The decisions here are great, both on a turn-to-turn tactical level and a strategic level. Rift Force, wholly recommend it. Our number 10 game of the year. Yeah, great. And let's get right on to our number nine game of the year, which is the lone Steppenfeld game that we've covered here. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> the bell, bell. bell strikes yeah. again. And it is Bonfire, my number three game of the year and Brendan's number 13. So being higher on this game, I think that Bonfire is a very complex Feld game. Um, and when I say filled game, just know what I mean is like point salad, Euro efficiency puzzle. Um, and this one really does a lot of interesting things. Like I appreciate the fact that we're playing on a board that looks so distinct from his other games, right? No, no, no beige building Renaissance architecture here. This is, uh, I don't even know what this Gnomes is. Gnomes and dreams. Please help me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, but you know, and that's, that's cool and different and it makes it like an exciting thing to play with and own, but the mechanisms here are like as tight and as top notch as anything you'll find in Carpe Diem or Castles of Burgundy or Bruges. Um, I really think this game fits right, um, right up there amongst his very best offerings. The more I play it or I've found fun things to explore, uh, and, it become and at this point now that I'm like so familiar with the game, it really has become like the I I play Bonfire the same way that I play something like Castles of Burgundy, right? I'm no longer interested in like exploring new strategies. It's just seeing how the board is laid out uh, and what my opponents are doing and trying to make the best decision I can on my turn. And every single turn feels like a very fun and interesting puzzle to dive into. It's just way more vast than in some of those other Feld games. Uh, and, and that's a pro and a con. Like it doesn't feel quite as neat because there's just way more to take in and, and decide between. Um, but some people will, will, will see that as a bigger plus. If you're looking for an excellent Euro game to play one time, do not play Bonfire. But if you're looking for an excellent Euro game that you could play 10 plus times, you should absolutely consider Bonfire. <laughs> the decision space here is so fascinating and it does this classic Feld thing. I think if I, I the more we cover Feld games, we're going to we're going to cover another one soon. The more I appreciate Jake that so much of what Stefan Feld is trying to do in his designs is to just allow you this complete openness in terms of how you approach objectives to give you freedom within the systems to adapt on a game-to-game play of what is best in this game. And that is why that puzzle is so rewarding and why we keep finding ourselves wanting to go back and wanting to go back. And Bonfire just captures that essence in such a pure way. Uh, We covered on the show how some games are sort of this like follow the path game where it's all about who can run down the road the designer does put before you faster, better. And this is not that. It's just an open space for you to explore and find what the best route through this really interesting decisional maze. And it does it so well. I, I 
our longtime listeners in the show will know that bonfire was a tough sell for me at the start. And I have come around on bonfire so much. I think it's a lovely design that asks a lot of the player, but gives a lot back. So I, yeah. And I think you would appreciate it even more and change your tune on that first point. If you had the opportunity to play it in person, Yeah, because I've taught this to people in person and it plays fast. It plays mm. in like an hour with like two players. Yeah. It's like, and, and there, it really, don't the, like the actual like actions are really limited and distilled in a, the way that Stubbenfeld does that you can like really the teach is way more manageable than you think. So I think like the complexity of this game has it's it's a vast decision space. It's deep, but like the actual complexity of getting to the table, I think has been like really overstated yeah. in a lot of reviews I've heard. Um, and I think that, you know, it, you can it's it's a manageable one. So that's number nine, Bonfire. But coming up next, take a trip to our number eight game of the year, the Palaces of Carrara, a game I ranked six and Jake ranked 10. This is a, a Crummer and Kiesling Euro game in which you're collecting differently colored stones that have uh, increasing value associated with their color on this wheel that you're turning and you're trying to use them to build buildings of different types in these six or five cities that correspond to the color of stones. And the whole puzzle corresponds is tied to the fact that you can only ever take one color of stone from the board at a time. And it's such a fascinating case study in timing, in in really in, in tempo and the scoring objectives are what take this game from a good game to an excellent game for me. There's very limited shared scoring opportunities that make you want to, uh, if, if you were just sort of put in this play space and you were playing on your own, it would never work because you would push and push and push and you get this huge payoff from a scoring objective. But you're always competing. So you can say, is this the optimal time for me to score? If I don't score now, is someone else going to snatch this scoring opportunity away from me? crushing the potential of my payout and that makes for an unsolvable puzzle that's just fun time and time again this is sort of the bread and butter euro that i wish more people had played and given a try so listener i'm going to implore you give it a try it's on board game arena it's quite good if you're looking for people to play with i'm always excited to play this with people in our discord this is one of the very few that both of us has listed in our top 10 and i think that's really telling not just because obviously we both really enjoyed this game and recommend it, but because this was one we covered very early in the year. And it, it might've been our like second game that we covered. Yeah. I think and, it was. And for it to like have a, a such a lasting positive Impact. impression on us. I wonder if we had covered this last week or two weeks ago, if it wouldn't have been even higher on this list being yeah. just a little bit fresher. And I really think it might have. Um, so yeah, I, I recommend cosine, Everything Brendan said, I recommend it. And yeah, I think way more people should check this one out. So that's number eight, The Palaces of Carrara by Michael Kiesling and Wolfgang Kramer. Our number seven game of the year is Cascadia, a game I ranked as my second favorite game of the year and Jake as his 14th. Uh, Cascadia won the Spiel VRs, so it's a pretty well-known game in the hobby these days. And I think that for me, the reason why I enjoy this game so much is it hit me at the perfect time in my life. Uh, Maya, my wife, and I had just had our son. We could really delve into this game and just play it over and over again. And on that rigorous play, uh, we played through the rulebook this year and last year, sort of straddling the years. Uh, or, sorry, you mean the scorebook? The scorebook. We played through all 100 games. And I, I love Cascadia. I'll play it more. I'm happy to play it more. It's the perfect 
example of a coffee table game to me where side by side there's at two players there's great interaction but you're never interacting in a way that feels too targeted so it can be a relaxing morning experience that you sort of share or a game you can come back to and sort of take a turn and and then sort of drift away and then come back and take your turn uh this game isn't going to work for people looking for interaction or people who want more emergent gameplay but but cascadia does this sort of uh in entangled drafting decisions of taking terrain and animals and fitting them nicely into this uh, point puzzle of trying to optimize your train and optimize your animal scoring in a way that's just delightful. I, I love Cascadia. I think it's a great game. Yeah, I think it's a very good game too. Um, and, you know, one I recommend as well. I think for me, the reason, like, the we have a 12 uh, space difference here. So it's a pretty big delta. And I think for me, the only thing missing from Cascadia is those peaks, right? Like yeah. it, it, Cascadia is a very well done game, hard to criticize, but it's just very level like the whole time throughout, you know, maybe towards the end, like, oh, I'm really hoping to get this special animal thing or, or not or whatever. Um, but the game gives you tools to get that pretty often, right? If you're able to like spend your pine cones wisely uh, and, and kind of the impression that I'm left with playing that game is like a flat positive impression throughout which is great, you know, that's a positive impression, but it's not like the agony and excitement and then agony again and then excitement that I get in some of the games that I've ranked a little higher. And I yeah. guess that's just something really important to me. Or maybe even the Palace of Kra, which we collectively rated slightly lower. But that's our number seven game of the year, Cascadia. Jake, do you want to take this next one? Because otherwise I have four in a row. <laughs> sure. Yeah, so this next one, is our number six game of the year, and it is Lost Cities by Reiner Kinesia. It is Brendan's number five game of the year and my number nine a battle line style game that uh, Rift Force is essentially a riff off of. Um, and I have this one ranked just two spots lower. And I have grown on this one so much since I've had it. We did a tournament, or since we covered it, we did a tournament in the Discord. I had a total blast playing in that i i picked up the game seeing a good deal on it uh in a, on our local facebook marketplace and was so glad that i've done so i've had the opportunity to show it to a bunch of different people everybody's really loved it i think it is you know just like riff force but more accessible even because yeah. uh it, it, it the theme i think is a little bit more accessible it's essentially just colors <laughs> whereas like some like riff force feel the criticism of Rift Force I have on the podcast, and I'll say again now, is it feels like a little too Magic the Gathering e with the art, which I don't think does a service to that style of game. So I like the theme here. It, it feels a little bit more mellow and fun, and it has just like such wonderful tension in every play. Um, I mean, sometimes you're going to get better cards than the other person, but that's okay because you could just shuffle up and go again. Jake talking about the high highs and low lows. I think Lost Cities is the perfect example of of that. You can have a turn where you just feel like you you know you can draw the perfect card in this game. It leaves room for bingos uh, that we've talked about in the past, and it also leaves room for sheer and utter despair, where your opponent has played you perfectly into a corner. You've played down two wagers in a specific color, and oh dear, you've you've multiplied your negative points uh, twice. 
So I think that Lost Cities for me, it's a game I played many years ago and and adored. It's a game we returned to and I adored. I think it's a preeminent classic board game that feels classic. You play this game and it feels like it was plucked from the ether. And it's a great example of the tenseness that Kinesia games can have that make them gripping and exciting and just iteratively fun. Lost Cities is a game I'd always love to play and it is our number six game of the year. Our number five game of the year is another Reiner Kinesia game, and uh, it was once the number one game on Board Game Geek. This is a game that I like significantly more than Jake does. It is my number one game of the year, and one of my Ooh. favorite games of all time. Uh, it is Jake's number 13 game of the year, which I think is actually pretty high, so yeah, I'm excited definitely. to hear what Jake uh, has to say. This is the only game we've ever spent two episodes covering, because we... Uh, I, I think there was a lot to discuss and sort of delve into. So if you if you haven't listened to our episode on Tigris and Euphrates, please go listen to those episodes. But Tigris and Euphrates uh, sort of has no, uh, I, I think it stands alone as a game that's highly interactive, highly confrontational, but also sort of highly strategic and forces players to make interesting decisions with the, their hand, their, their delegate, but gives them agency over shaping the hand that they'll play from that point onwards. There's, there's interesting room to sort of play it uh, with social dynamics, but you can also sit back and not play it that way at all and sort of play it uh, more to kind of optimize your position on the table. I love the way that the mo the monument mechanics play out and create these dense spaces of tension within the board that pull everyone in and force conflict. And it's a game that I would play. I, I, if we talked about legacy or uh, excuse me. We talked about games that people might try to make their sort of like hobby game, their lifestyle game. I, I think I'd love to have a group where we just treated Tigers and Euphrates as our lifestyle. Game. <laughs> this is me. Yeah, yeah. I, I think Tigers Euphrates. There's a lot about this game that I found super frustrating to learn, um, which you'll hear me talk about a lot, or have heard me talk about a lot if you've listened to those two episodes. And that still remains true. I think I've probably had more like negative play experience with this game than positive, but I just like can't deny the fact that I've had fun trying to like understand it and like trying to learn the game and then you know finding a win here or there feels very satisfying um and it, you know it's a game that i think it's 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 like almost like an aspirational pick for me it's like a game i appreciate more than like i genuinely like love yeah but like for that reason like i want to play it more yeah. um but you know i'm an intellectual guy like after all like citizen kane is my favorite film of all time so. you know <laughs> I've been passed with how straight of a face you said that way. Um, Wait, is it yeah. really? No, no. no oh my gosh, I was so I, I was gonna feel so bad. <laughs> of course, dude. It's so I watch it. Every, I watch it every year. I just, every it's Christmas, like, it's right? a masterpiece of cinema, Brendan. I can't believe you don't appreciate it. What it is. Okay, but I can't believe. Oh no! How did this kid just come up while we're talking about Tigers and Euphrates? <laughs> uh, of course, it would come up because I feel like that is this is like the it's, citizen cane of our hobby it's or interesting or in that cat in that type of category in esteem and it's well deserved do you think jake too that you've come around on kinesia which may, maybe has made you come around on being interested in tigers and euphrates yeah definitely yeah. i think um that's the real win of the year for me yeah I, well i mean look we've got uh kinesia as our number six and number five games a year so that's definitely our 
designer of note. Heck we should yeah. call it like should it be like uh, last year. Stefan Feld was like our rookie designer of the year, and now we've got Kinesia as our rookie designer of the year. These are if you didn't listen to Decision Space, how would you know about these incredible designers? Right? There, there is this tight, shortest aside ever, but uh, there was a in in the disc golf hobby. There was like a new pro tour, yeah, like uh, structure that came about, like a, a new organization called the Disc Golf Pro Tour, and so everyone was like new to it. So they had their rookie player of the year was like five time world champion Juliana Corver. <laughs> it was like rookie of the year. <laughs> what? it's like if michael jordan if there was a new basketball league and he jumped in there yeah exactly that's a that's hilarious that's awesome awesome well that's tigers from freddy's number five game of the year rookie game of the year rookie designer of the year congratulations writer (laughs) have your people reach out to our people we'll we'll get we'll send you the plaque in the mail (laughs) Yeah, yeah okay moving on to number four we have The Isle of Cats, a game Brendan and I both adored. I had it as my number six game of the year. Brendan had it as his number seven, so both safely inside of our top 10 games covered. Isle of Cats to me is a beautiful mess. It was the type of game where uh, as I was learning it, I just thought like, you know, what is this? Like, I don't agree with the decisions (laughs) this designer has made. I don't think it makes sense. And it certainly doesn't work for me. Except for it does, you know, except for it all comes together to create like a super fun gaming experience. And I think out of that was sort of born Brendan's term mechanical artifice for it's like we've got all this nonsense going on in the Isle of Cats that doesn't really have anything to do with the actual goal of the game, which is like loading your boat with these cats like you've got fish you've got fish income you've got different costs for cats because they're on the different fields in the island and you've got uh, card drafting oh and you've got your baskets and you've got two-part broken baskets that you can combine for one temporary basket like all of this stuff where the game could and does exist in the family version of the game of just drafting the dang stupid cat tiles and putting them on your board in a pleasing manner and that game is also great um and and it's just you know i think it's it's a, such an interesting case study in game design of like you know it, it feels like the maximalist approach to sort of uh be the counterpoint to something like living forest which has also a bunch of different mechanisms but they're all yeah. like so restrained right yeah. and that didn't quite work for you um so i think they're kind of two interesting games that that share a lot of similarities uh, but have just like a very different design ethos. Uh, and, and to me, both work. Um, and, and and I think, you know, the Isle of Caps is one of the games I purchased this year after after covering on the show. And, and it's been kind of like a standout in my collection for that like dual purpose of being a fun family intro weight game and also more of a hobbyist game. Should you this, choose to go that route? This is also a game where you don't have to have perfect knowledge of the card pool to play the drafting game in an interesting and meaningful way. And that's another thing that I really admire about this game and has grown on me the more that I've sort of looked back at this design. Everything you said about the game is spot on, Jake. I'll also add just really quickly that I think one of the real realizations that I had playing this game is that tiling, like Tetris, tiling a, a rectangular space with polyominoes, interesting. Tiling a ship space that is petered at the end and has these interesting grooves 
also really fun and interesting. And I've done a lot of the first one. I haven't tiled a lot of ships with polyominoes and I want more irregular shapes. It, it warps the puzzle in an interesting way. It makes it fresh. And this game is just so lovingly made. The little cats going, the ghost cats going through walls. It's great. Uh, the Isle of Cats is, is lovely. I think that this was a game both Jake and I went in not expecting to love and both clearly really enjoy. So the Isle of Cats is our number four game of the year. And now onto our top three. We're starting off the top three with Uwe Rosenberg's A Feast for Odin, my number two game of the year, and Brendan's number 10. I mean, what is there left to say about A Feast for Odin? Talk about a maximalist design. This game presents you with a legitimate menu of worker placement spaces numbered in like the 40s or something you've got you know a bunch of decks of occupation cards you've got weapon cards you've got all kinds of different resources the food tiles that can turn into the better food cooked food which can then of course turn into uh crappy wares which could then turn into really nice stuff like forks then there's like animal breeding (laughs) your your islands and explorations sending your vikings away to like i don't know where they go to the arcade there's whaling there's trapping there's just endless amounts of things that you can do in this game it's like it is the sandbox for the hobbyist board gamer where whatever you want to do in this game whatever route you want to go down and explore like you can do that and you'll probably have a great time doing it certainly there are strategies that are better than others and it will be more likely to lead you to a winning score that's especially true in the base game a lot of that kind of rough edges is evened out um, when you incorporate the norwegians expansion in which a lot of people kind of consider a mandatory patch to the game if you have it definitely play with it but the base game in in and of itself uh is is great fun and, and i've been playing a lot of that on board game arena even though you know, I've got the Norwegians at home uh, for the rare, like once a year time that I, I can get a game this heavy to the table. I think it's rare when someone sets out to make an epic that they succeed. And I think that undeniably Uwe Rosenberg has succeeded in creating an epic piece of media and an epic board game. And it Feast for Odin is so fun. It's just delightful and fun. And it, it's not trying to get in your way. And it's it's great that it doesn't because there's so much there that you just want to run all over the place and touch everything and explore every piece of the system and play with your tiles. And it's not perfect. There's things about the sort of the tiling puzzle that I don't think are all that great. And the decisions aren't that sharp. But it's a game that's more than the sum of its parts. And one that I will relish the opportunity to play more of in the future. It's everything that i hoped it would be and frankly a little bit more so a feast for odin is our number three decision space of the year and this next game y'all oh my goodness i think that jake and i could dedicate a whole podcast episode to talking about this game which we have done and you should listen to because statistically speaking most of our audience well most of our audience has probably listened to it but there's a subset that's larger than it should be that hasn't and if i'm talking to you you should listen to the BattleCon episode because it's our number two game of the year between Jake and I, and it's just so good. BattleCon is a a two-player dueling card game that's set up like a classic 90s-style fighting game video game. The decision space seeks to emulate that, and it succeeds wildly at doing so while creating something sort of unique and of itself that's rich, deep, interesting, rewarding, 
and seemingly endless with the number of characters that, that are in this game. You know what I just said about a, a lifestyle game, Jake, about Tigers and Euphrates? Yes, but I'm going to have two lives because I'm also dedicating a whole nother life to just being a Battlecon stan. I just want to play Battlecon all day, every day. I'm coming down there. I'm bringing a duffel bag full of all the Battlecon that ever existed. We're going to spend <laughs> a solid 10 years playing it. Battlecon's incredible. <laughs> so totally. When you said you could dedicate a whole podcast episode to it. I thought you were going to say we could dedicate a whole podcast to well, it. We could, I think obviously. we could like yeah. it, it's, it's definitely that type of game. And I think what you said is so spot on about it being this sort of adaption of a fighting video game, but like any good adaption, it, it recreates it truthfully, yeah. but it also does something that you could only do in the medium that it's now in right it's like when a book becomes a movie you don't want it to just be like just literally everything <laughs> yeah. from the book right you you want it to be like a great movie yeah of the book right that's hopefully like not 12 hours long and you yeah. know has some cool visual specs and i think battlecon does that here so well where it is a fighting video game done in a way that only like a board game could do it so that you get to feel like all the joys of both in it so it's no wonder that we have it as our number two game of the year your number four my number five Battlecon, which leaves only our number one game of the year and through a process of deduction astute listeners might be able to guess what this is and it is alexander fister's broom service my Number one game of the year and Brendan's number three. I think Broom Service is a masterpiece board game. I think it's the type of board game that everyone should try and probably has a space in most people's collection. The thing that's so great about Broom Service, I think, is that uh, it, you know, it definitely hits all the marks for being like a really fun and rich decision space. It has incredibly high peaks and incredibly low valleys for our druids to uh, deliver potions to uh, and also for players to experience with their emotional state over the course of play um and it's really not too difficult to learn and play you know it really fits and it's not too long it fits that like perfect medium weight sweet spot unsurprising for a spiel winner uh, but one that doesn't seem like it's talked about, I think, enough. But all of that aside, I think what makes Broom Service to me like just this incredible top tier game is that it brings like the exact type of energy I want to my board gaming table. Like it is fun. It is loud at times, right? It has a very fun version of player interaction where you are destroying each other like yeah. viciously but the way that you're doing it like if you're getting destroyed it's because like you took a risk right and you knew better and then when it happens like you put your head in your hands and are distraught but like you can't help but sort of blame yourself you know it's not like oh brendan's winning so like we all need to like march our people over it's not that type of player interaction it's like for me a much more fun version of that that's just like absolutely baked into the essence of this game when you guess right and you you take a risk and you guess right in some games you feel pretty smart 
in broom service you feel like a dastardly mastermind who has just completely like pulled one over on your on the entire table but you also like maybe didn't have the underpinning to know that it was the perfectly right decision which just puts you in that the perfect joyful space this is just like a jubilant game on the table that plays quickly it packs a tremendous punch there's so many decisions that sort of uh have the potential to to add up to make this a, a rich strategic experience while still leaving so much room for like jake said this convivial fun back and forth at the table it scales really well at two players it's highly interactive you have these cards that sort of shape the decision space as the the cards become sort of cursed then you don't want to use them because you have to pay extra to use them so pushes you into a tighter corner as you go head to head and as you add more players it gets zanier but the zaniness kind of like plays into what's going on with the game and it's just broom service like jake said doesn't get the the shrift it deserves it's a wonderful wonderful game that i think might represent the, uh, the sort of like end of an evolutionary link of games that should exist more games should exist like broom service because it's just that good so if you've never played broom service seek it out it's a good game both jake and i recommend it we really enjoy it and that's why it's our number one game of the year and our number one decision space of the year can I say one last thing about it? Yeah. Which is just that, like, even the thematic integration just puts people in the perfect headspace, right? Where the game makes you say, like, I am a cowardly weather fairy, oh, so you know, good. or I am like a brave weather fairy or whatever, right? It's like, it just clues people in, you know, consciously or subconsciously that, like, we're gathered around this table to, like, have fun and play a game in a way that's just great, right? Like, I'm playing mostly with adults and like one of the reasons I play board games is because like, I think that engaging in play is like a super fun and super important form of like self care. And it's good to be like reminded, you know, during the course of play that like, this is silly. We're doing this to have fun and like enjoy each other's company. And I think that's something too, that like more games could take a lesson from. And not that every game it has to be like silly themes or whatever, but just like a small element like that, that just like reminds players, like we're playing a game here and it's fun. It feeds the silly part of your soul in such a great way while leaving room for the optimizing part of that I know exists in both Jake and I's brain that we both want to be in our board games. And it sort of makes that odd combination work in a way that's frankly astounding. The optimization puzzle and figuring out what the right move is really fun. Figuring out what your opponents want to do and stopping them even more fun. It's just so good. Also, Vincent Dutray art of witches. That's really lovely. It's really, really nice. Uh, it's, it's just overall a lovely, lovely game. So that's why Broom Service is the best. Y'all should play it and play Battlecon. All right. Well, that's it for our top all the games that we've covered this year list. Um, but we're not done because we have to share the communities list. Yeah. Let's do it quick, Jake. Let's do for the community list. We're going to do the top 10 because I think that's really representative sort of the community's top 10 and of, of where the community overall is at. Uh, so Maybe I'll read the first five and you can do the top five. How's that work, Jay? I'll read the first five because the top five is more your territory anyway. <laughs> okay, okay. All right. So number 10, Cartographers. Number nine, Living Forest. Wait, wait, wait. Number, Jake, what if you give one little comment after each one? Okay. Number 10, Cartographers. You really could have done better, community. <laughs> number nine, li Living Forest. Now we're talking here. <laughs> number eight, 
the palaces of Carrara. That really surprises me that people, I didn't know anyone else had played this game. It you can't have been listening. one that got a lot of votes. Maybe it's just our two votes. <laughs> uh, number seven, broom service. These are clearly people of culture, you know, yes. who listen to this show and I respect them. And number six, Tigris and Euphrates. Oh, I guess we have some fellow intellectuals. Maybe we can discuss Citizen Kane in the Discord together later. <laughs> Number five, Lost Cities. No one's lost with this pick. Brilliant. Number four, Agricola. This is clearly why we're all going to get roasted, but I'm really <laughs> glad that the community can represent the, the well-accepted pick that this is a great game. Number three, yes. Wait, I'm supposed to say the game first. Great Western Trail. Yes, yes, yes. Well done, y'all. Number two, A Feast for Odin, right at home. Uh, obviously, we're, we're right there. And the number one community-picked game of the year is Cascadia, which I think really serves to highlight that this is a game that everyone likes, even if not everyone loves. Uh, this is one of the most voted for games of the year. Uh, and it doesn't surprise me that it's on this list. It's just a great game. So that's our community top 10. Cartographers, Living Forest, Palaces of Carrera, Broom Service, Tigris and Euphrates, Lost Cities, Agricola, Great West Trail, A Feast for Odin, Cascadia. Cascadia joining the esteemed Race for the Galaxy as the only other community-voted number one decision space of the year. So nice. that is a good grouping to be in, to be sure. And then the final thing we want to do on the show is to kind of highlight the places where we diverge from the audience and the audience diverge from us. So the top three games that the audience ranks higher than us are Baron Park, which y'all rated 11 spots higher. Great Western Trail, which y'all rated 12 spots higher. That's my fault. <laughs> and Agricola, which y'all rated 15 spots higher. That's my fault. We're both taking the L on that one. Yeah. And then, uh, the so the games where we were much higher in the audience, number three, Hidden Service. Gems. We were six higher, but, you know, clearly the audience still really liked them. Uh, number two, the Isle of Cats. We were 13 spots higher. I know this is a polarizing one just from yeah. the discussion in our Discord. Um, I think it does have a lot of fans, but a lot of detractors as well. And then number one, BattleCon. We were 19 spots higher than this one. I, I, maybe this just speaks to the fact that this game is like more niche than we give yeah. it credit for, since we're both people that have played fighting games at you more than me, but like at a competitive le level yeah. in tournaments. So clearly, like that theme is going and, and the gameplay is going to appeal to us. And maybe we'll get more out of it than others because of that. But I think that more people should try it even still. I think it doesn't ask as much as it seems like it might based on its theme, based on its presentation. And it's just a really great game. So if you get the chance, definitely play it. I think to close this episode, Jake and I, oh, I want to mention really quickly that on the website webpage for this episode, which you can find on decisionspacepodcast.com, I'll make sure to uh, share Jake's list, my list, the community list, and our combined decision space list of the year all on that page if you if you want to go there and reference them. Uh, also, I will say that we are doing a lot of upcoming episodes that are going to be really fun and exciting. Coming up, we're going to be talking about the games we want to cover in our next 100 episodes. <laughs> and Jake gets full credit for this episode title, episode 101 is going to be Decision Space 101, which is going to be a list of what we think are some of the best episodes we've ever done, and also a discussion of Decision Space thus far, the things we're most proud of about the show, where we see the show going in the future, uh, and just sort of a reflection on two 
full years almost of doing this podcast together. And the fact that we're just uh, two episodes shy of episode 100 and that being a huge milestone uh, is not lost on us. And the fact that so many of y'all have been with us since the beginning of this uh, and supporting us and encouraging us to keep going and even uh, financially supporting the show so we could improve our audio along the way is incredible. Uh, So appreciated. Uh, And yeah, so we're just really grateful for it that, it's been another amazing year of raiding games and hopefully many more to come. Yeah. So I guess with that, I will say if you're still listening, you are a super fan. So first and foremost, just thank you for being a fan of the show. We we're so thrilled that we get to sit around and talk about board games, analyze board games with our own tricky little lenses, and also just have found an audience of games of people that want to do that with us. We feel so thankful. If you feel compelled at all to review Decision Space on wherever you listen to your podcast, that'd be amazing. Uh, It does a lot for the show. But most of all, I just want to say thank you for listening to Decision Space. And with that, we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.